Do you read blogs to help with travel planning? Many of us do, and I've invited today's guest on the show to share her insightful and refreshing take about the realities of travel blog content. By better understanding how travel blogs work, we as readers and consumers can get a better handle on how and if to use the information we find in blogs when planning our family trips. Welcome to Family Travel Radio, the official podcast of the Family Travel Association. Family Travel Radio is on the air, helping you discover the world of possibilities family travel has to offer. Leslie Harvey is a family travel blogger and freelance travel writer. Her blog, Trips with Tykes, chronicles the joys and challenges of travel with young kids. Leslie's travel passions include all things planes and air travel, Disney, snow skiing, and national parks. Leslie also co-hosts both the Disney Deciphered and the Disneyland with Kids podcast, and she co-owns the 20,000-member Disneyland with Kids Facebook group. Leslie lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her husband, their 10-year daughter and their six-year-old son. Leslie Harvey, welcome to Family Travel Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. All right. Leslie, just, just reading your bio there, it's it's really clear that like many of us out here, you have a deep passion for travel. But tell me about that point in your life when you made the decision to take all that passion and put it into a blog. It was really happenstance. I used to be an attorney <laughs> in a former life. Oh and I know. And so I did a lot of travel, obviously, for work. That's just sort of par for the course. And just happened to be one of the uh, first of my friend group um, in the San Francisco Bay Area to have children. And so my family was across the country. I'm in California. They were in Alabama and all over across the East Coast. And needed to take my baby on a plane. And I guess when friends started having kids a year or two or three later, they were emailing me asking, how on earth do I do this? <laughs> and someone uh, told me I should turn an email into a blog post. And I did. I mean, it was truly, truly on a whim. I had no idea that people did this blogging thing for a living and uh, continued to practice law for several years while I was doing it in the, be in the beginning. So did you have any appreciation at the time for what you were doing or that other people might look at what you're doing and, and think that they could never possibly do it? Did you feel like you were doing something special? Yeah. I mean, I felt like I was helping people. I mean, one of the things about being an attorney is that like I focus on all of the little details, the minutiae that maybe other people don't, like the weird rule that American Airlines has about check gate checking strollers, things like that. And and so I felt like I was helping people because I would be the one to ferret out those weird rules that would then help other people not have that roadblock in their own travels. Because especially traveling and air travel with babies is really just a trap for the unwary in a lot of places. So I just loved helping people. I mean, I never thought that travel blogging would be something that would ever return anything other than just the intangible to me, the the feeling of helping other people do it and then encouraging them to do it. And then a lot of people are, are afraid that their travels are going to come to an end when they have children. So I just felt like if I could inspire other people to get over that hurdle, then it was worth it to me. So what do you, what do you say to those people? Do you have kind of a canned response to those people who say, you know, we've, our travel days are over. We're, we're about to have our first child or something to that effect. What do you say to that person? 
Well, I say, first of all, that um, parenthood isn't martyrhood. (laughs) (laughs) If you love travel yourself, you shouldn't give it up just because you have kids. And there are benefits to the kids to traveling. I mean, what my children have been exposed to has been life-changing for them. It's also, I think, made me a better parent. I I tend to be somebody who micromanages and stresses about the little details. And when I travel, you know, I couldn't worry about my kid being late for nap time one day or staying up past bedtime. I mean, it made me be flexible as a parent. And I probably would have been much more of a helicopter if I had not traveled as much as I did. So your kids are six and 10. Have you guys been overseas? We have been several times and it is challenging um, to do the longer, you know, big time zone changes. I've taken my daughter to Hong Kong, both of my kids to Panama and Canada, Mexico, the easy stuff. We have not done Europe yet, but that that's coming. But you've done the massive time zone changes. That's that's really what I was keying in on there when you said you're talking about bedtimes. Because when you're, you know, your kids eight or ten time zones away from home, when is bedtime anyway? That's just <laughs> one of those like squishy concepts that you just have to let go of. And to your point, can make you a better parent through just giving you that giving offering you that perspective of you know, the things that you get wrapped up in at home, the, the details and the minutiae, suddenly you get a, you gain a, a new perspective on that when you travel, especially when you get way outside your comfort zone and get out, get out of your neighborhood. Absolutely. And uh, I'm grateful now. I mean, I, when I, I only have to change three time zones going to the East Coast, it feels like such a breeze, right? <laughs> <laughs> so if you didn't have that travel for work and you didn't, when you didn't have thousands of miles separating you from your extended family, would you have built up those travel shops, you think? I think I would, but probably not to the same extent. Um, I mean, I've always traveled. My my grandparents were world travelers in an era, you know, way back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s when people really didn't. And, and growing up in Alabama, that was especially unusual for people in the deep south to leave the country. My grandparents, my, my grandfather had a map on his office wall that had little push pins in it of all of the countries that he had visited. And I remember just gazing up at that as a child in awe, thinking, I want to do that when I grow up. I mean, they had been to Persia before the fall of the Shah. They were some of the first Americans in China when Nixon opened it up. So I felt like I really had a family legacy of travel. Um, and that that hit home with me very young. But I probably would have been a little more gun shy if I didn't have to get on a plane to go see grandma and grandpa, you know, just by necessity across the country. But it would have taken me a little longer, I think. That is, that is such a great story. And I love that you use the word legacy because that's, that's a story that I try to tell when I'm trying to communicate to parents how important it is to, to travel with their kids because it, of course it benefits the children, but the, it's building that legacy for, for yourself selfishly to some degree that you're going to, that you, the impact you made on your children is going to live on. And and I love like the, the story with the pushpin map, because when your grandfather's putting that together, he, he's doing it for himself, maybe to entertain, just to entertain himself. He didn't realize what he was doing or the impact he was going to have on you, but he That's did. Right. Like, like you can come back all these years later and just take yourself right back to that moment in time when you're looking up at these pushpins. And then you're, you know, you've, it literally could have skewed the timeline of your life with just one, the, one simple little act of putting that map together. It's so cool. And I just love hearing stories like that. Yeah, definitely. I'm very, very grateful for that, for that legacy, as you, as you call it. Well, we're all building our own legacies here. So let's move on to uh, something a little more controversial, perhaps, than, than our travel legacies. The topic today is travel journalism and blogging. And hosted travel is something that you, you write about 
quite critically in, in a blog over, or excuse me, in a post that you have written over at tripswithtikes.com. And we're going to have that post linked up in the show notes at familytravel.org slash radio, because it really does serve as a good companion if you want to explore this topic deeper. Leslie wrote a, a great article on that. But let's talk about hosted travel, Leslie. What is it that the average travel consumer doesn't know about hosted travel that you want them to know? This is something that I didn't even know in the early years of blogging that so many of the people that I was reading, um, both both in traditional travel publications as well as on their own travel blogs, are receiving comped travel, that the travel that they're doing is being paid for by the destination. So, you know, this just really can run the gamut. This can just be, you know, a couple of tickets to a museum, or it can be that they're paying for your entire exotic trip to a luxury resort in Hawaii. And in some cases now, too, destinations um, and travel brands are even paying people for the travel that they're doing. You know, they're, they're both comping you as well as paying you a fee for um, the travel writing and the things that you're putting on social media. So this is, this is um, surprising to a lot of people. And, and I sort of stumbled upon it myself. Um, I was paying for all my own travel for the first couple of years I was travel blogging. I had no idea that people were getting uh, comped to do what I was, you know, paying to do. Well, how does that fundamentally, I mean, you're a great example, given that you've, you've lived on both sides of that boundary. What's the, what's the fundamental difference for you as a blogger going into a trip that you paid for on your own dime, you don't owe anybody anything per se, versus a trip you're going into where there's either a clear or at least an implied understanding of what the destination is going to expect in return for that free trip? Yeah, I mean, I try to treat the trips the same, but the big question is always, can the blogger do that? I mean, there's a big question of bias when you're getting something for free, especially something that you really want for free. I mean, sometimes it's it's a nice little perk, but I would pay for it anyway, or... Um, you know, I just need the ticket to be able to write about someplace that I would like to write about, but it's not like it's changing my life because I got something for free. So, I mean, I always try to treat both trips the same. And I know realistically that in the back of my brain that I'm probably not. And I see other people, um, I, I certainly see other bloggers who are clearly affected by the free travel. And you know, and we all sort of have our own policies about this in the travel blogging world. And you know, it, it, it varies because sometimes, you know, I'm going to a place and uh, this will be my one and done at this destination. But there's some places I return to regularly. So people worry about getting invited back again. I mean, that's always an issue with especially like theme parks like Disney, because people are going to those destinations multiple, multiple times. So it's it's incredibly, incredibly tricky. Well, dig in a little bit more. You, you, you said that some bloggers are clearly affected by this. What do you mean exactly by clearly affected? I mean, I've certainly seen many social media influencers, many bloggers who have never said a bad thing about any destination that has comped them. And I think that's a red flag to me. And, you know, we all, those of us who read different sites and different um, news outlets, we, you know, you, you, you come to know it. I'm not sure a reader who encounters a blog in a Google search or from Pinterest necessarily would understand the bias immediately. And that's why I think it's so, so important for bloggers to disclose, disclose early, disclose often, and then let the reader make the decision about whether you're biased or not. Or not. So, I mean, I always make sure that all my blog posts, when I've received received something for free, that I'm 
saying that up front, I got this for free, or I got part of this for free. I think that's sometimes really illuminating to realize, oh gosh, this person paid for their own airfare and you know their hotel, but they got free theme park tickets. That doesn't seem as um, potentially bias in, uh, introducing. So compare the, the performance of, of a blog that was, say for example, let's go to one extreme. You have a blog where it was a fully hosted trip. You're, you're disclosing, you know, you, you're regularly disclosing all of the, the, the complimentary products and services you received. Compare that post to one where you paid for everything out of your own pocket. You didn't have to disclose anything because there was nothing to disclose. Do those, what can you tell me, what can you tell us about the performance between those two posts? Do, do readers get turned off by the comps and the disclosures? Some readers do. I mean, some readers just naturally have a backlash against that and they don't want to read anything about comp travel. I think they're a small minority in the travel world. I think a lot of readers realize that it's possible to write about a destination mostly in an unbiased fashion, even if you don't pay for every, you know, every last penny of that trip. So, I, I mean, I think most, most readers are able to sort of parse that for themselves if they have that information up front. Um, so, so, you know, I, hopefully from, from my perspective that the blog post I write is going to be the same, whether I'm fully hosted or whether I pay for it myself, I'm still looking for the same things. I'm still researching how much the trip is going to cost. That's a mistake I see a lot of bloggers making. They take the free trip, they write the post, and they never knew how much value they ever looked up. Oh, this hotel room was $500 a night. These tickets were $300. And this trip all in all was worth $7,000 to me because a huge part of travel writing is analyzing cost and talking about budgeting and value. And if you aren't looking into that, you're missing a huge part of the story. Have you either yourself or in somebody else in your, in your circle of bloggers, have you ever seen a situation where someone wrote up a trip that was comped and didn't write a glowing review and then was, was essentially punished or blackballed in some way by the, de by the sponsoring destination? Yes, I have seen that. And obviously not going to name any names, but there are definitely people who are who are not invited back or who really, there's a mismatch sometimes between the destination and the travel blogger because some destinations think, oh, I, I've comped you. you, you should write something that's glowing and positive. And in my, in my opinion, a comped trip is not um, something where you expect a positive hundred percent of positive review across the board um, coming back on the back end. I, maybe a paid trip is something where you expect, I mean, that's more like you're buying marketing. You're buying an advertisement on somebody's blog if you're paying for that. But if you're just comping them, you're just inviting them in and, and showing them what you have to offer. And if you believe in what you have to offer, you think that, you know, the review should mostly come back positive. But, but I don't think that, I think destinations are unrealistic if they expect uh, a glowing review from bloggers just because they've given somebody something for free. So now that you've, you've sort of made your, your thoughts known on this topic, you know, through, through this post and then the fact that you're having this conversation with me today. So being a travel blogger yourself, you, you obviously have skin in this game. So what made you decide to, to step out and take such a firm stance on this topic? Well, I mean, these are just, this is an extension of conversations I was having with fellow travel bloggers whose opinion I really trust, whose ethics I think are on the up and up. And we were having these conversations behind the scenes. And 
I wanted to, you know, share those thoughts and put it out there. You know, being a lawyer, I'm not afraid to shy mm-hmm. away from controversy. But more importantly, I wanted my readers to hold me accountable because I saw myself, you know, as I became more successful, getting a lot of these comp trips. And um, I wanted my readers to know that my first and foremost obligation was to serve them. And if I ever was slipping and wasn't serving them, that I wanted them to, you know, stand up and and hold me accountable. And it's been interesting to see the swing in my travel blogging career because, you know, the very beginning I was paying for all of it myself because didn't have any influence and anybody who wanted to host me. And then I got a lot of hosted uh, travel in the middle. And now I actually... I'm really not seeking out as much hosted travel. I'm actually turning down more of it to pay for it myself to just continue to have that really unbiased platform because that works for me. Interesting. So I'm thinking of another analogy that that most folks can relate to. And the one that came to mind was movie critics. Movie critics will most likely see the movies for free, but by no means are they obligated to write a glowing review of, of the film. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, I think that's a very fair comparison. Of course, the thing of value that movie critics get is, you know, they get to see a movie early and they get the, the cost of the ticket and, and travel sometimes because of the cost of travel, people people see it differently. If you're getting a $10,000 trip to the Maldives, then, you know, <laughs> I understand the mismatch a little bit. I'm thinking just the overall perception of, of a travel blogger. Really, you're a travel critic. And for for some reason that never really made its way into the vernacular. But if you were branded as and the collective, you travel bloggers were instead travel critics. I think that would maybe offer just a little bit more transparency or at least maybe change the the perception of, of the reader. Like this person is here to offer me an unbiased opinion of this, not just be a cheerleader for some destination or experience that gave them some free stuff. Cause I think that's, I feel like that's what you're after here. It's really just that transparency over, over anything. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And and where this gets so hard is because there's been such a blurring of the lines between traditional journalism and bloggers and then social media influencers. There's this kind of spectrum in my mind um, as to you know, what the, what the traditional practices are of these different groups. And I think a lot of people like say your, your, your Instagram influencer, for example, is not going to be adhering to the same standards as somebody who came from, you know, old print media. And it's, it's hard to know. And then a lot of people do all of it now, right? So what hat do they have on and Mm. what standards are their followers or their readers expecting from them, depending upon what hat that they're wearing? You're talking earlier about the different types of disclosures. Some are likely more transparent and obvious than others. So as readers, as consumers, what are some of the things that we should be looking for as we're reading these blogs? If maybe the disclosures aren't as transparent as they should be, what kind of things should we be trying to identify? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a real problem because a lot of influencers and bloggers are not disclosing at all. So if if you if your spidey sense is tingling <laughs> about something that you're reading and you, you're following somebody and you see that they're always taking these exotic trips and there's no way that they're paying for all of that and they're not disclosing, then I mean that's somebody that I quit reading, I unfollow, or sometimes I call them out. I mean, you know, I don't necessarily do that to to fellow uh, fellow bloggers all the time. Sometimes I'll pri- private message them. <laughs> And say, hey, by the way, I think you forgot to disclose on this post. But, um, you know, I, I mean, as a reader, though, when I'm, I'm not sort of a fellow travel blogger, uh, when I don't, don't have that hat on, I just quit following them if I don't think that they're being honest with me. And I think that should be the message that a lot of readers take away is, 
you know, don't, don't give these people your money if they're not being straight with you. Well, you talk about wearing different hats. I'm going to ask you to put on your, your former lawyer hat for a moment. What is the legal requirement? There is a legal requirement when it comes to disclosing compensation. What is the minimum that bloggers must do, not just should do, but must do in order to be in compliance with the law? So the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, governs all of this, and they've uh, put out some guidelines and some regulations about what uh, should be disclosed. But the bottom line is, if you get something of value, and the FTC hasn't fully told us what that is, but the understanding is if you get something like for free that is of value to you, then you need to be disclosing that. And what kind of language you're supposed to use is a little bit dicey and unclear. I mean, the easiest thing is hashtag ad, hashtag sponsored. And a lot of people don't like doing that on hosted travel because it's not really an ad. I'm just, you know, I'm getting this for free to be able to write about it, but I'm not in the pocket of this, you know, this destination, but that's what the FTC says. And Unfortunately, we have to abide by that. And I, I do tend to use shorter disclosures on my social media posts. And I use natural language in my blog posts to explain exactly what I got for free and what I didn't so that my reader can then really have that nuance to be able to read my blog with um, you know, wide open eyes. Well, we certainly appreciate that. And we hope that by putting this out into the world, hopefully we can encourage readers to, to be more diligent in calling out the writers of those blogs, but then also encouraging the bloggers to be transparent and realize that, you know, at the end of the day, as a consumer, I don't think I really care all that much, but I appreciate the transparency and the honesty. Hopefully my friends out there in podcast land, you're going to want to explore this topic more and you are in luck if you do, because Leslie has a detailed post on this topic on her blog at tripswithtikes.com. And of course you can find a direct link to Leslie's post in the show notes at familytravel.org slash radio. We've been chatting with Leslie Harvey from Trips with Tykes. That's just the way it sounds. T-R-I-P-S-W-I-T-H-T-Y-K-E-S.com. Tripswithtykes.com. Leslie Harvey, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for taking some time. Thanks for having me. You know that there's more to life than your work, but do your kids know? Last year, 55% of American parents didn't use all their vacation days. Taking time off to travel lets you show your kids different sides of the world and different sides of yourself like the side that does things like this. Family travel is easier and more affordable than you might think. You brought them into this world. Now show it to them. Discover the possibilities at familytravel.org. Hey, it's Aaron Schlein. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Family Travel Radio. All the notes for this episode and for every episode of the podcast are available at familytravel.org slash radio. All right, my friend, until we meet again, this is Aaron Schlein for Family Travel Radio, and I am signing off. <laughs>